0: Hi there, I'm Brian Davis and I'm Jay Kanayan. Welcome to The Heart of Matter, a series in which we talk to and share conversations with inspiring and interesting people and dive into the core issues and motivations behind their work, their worldview, and their lives. Um, Today we welcome Brian Robertson, uh, the founder of Holacracy, a social technology of corporate governance. Um, Brian has written a great deal and has several public talks, and I encourage listeners to dive in and learn more about Brian and his work and Holacracy as a concept. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, uh, obviously, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to diving into a lot of the kind of meaty topics of what Holacracy is and and sort of where it came from. Uh, I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit more, maybe about... Um, your sort of setup, what what kind of led you to this space intellectually and where, you know, where were you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: Yeah. So I, I was uh, an entrepreneur when this whole thing started for me. I've been an entrepreneur for uh, quite a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, what led me to be an entrepreneur was just, I, I was just so fed up working in the kind of corporate bureaucracies that i had seen. And, and in hindsight, I was actually in some relatively good ones. I, my heart really goes out to the people that are in the, the more mind-numbing ones today. Uh, so I just, I wanted, I wanted to find a better way. Uh, mostly I wanted to just be in my own little bubble and not have to put up with the kind of crap that corporate America puts up with today. Um, and that kind of evolved then to like, I, I just wanted to experiment. I wanted to find a better way. So I, I turned my uh, software company at the time I was building, as uh, about 20 years back, Um, into a laboratory and what drove it was just the sense of there's just got to be a better way to do this and i had no idea what it was but i wanted to i wanted to find something you know some way to enable more people to have more voice more real power drive real change more purpose more meaning in their work i mean there's so many issues i had run into um so for me, this came and uh, my, my whole journey was really started with just building my own thing entrepreneurially. And then I realized I was
0: far more passionate in how we work together than in the actual products and services we were building and providing. Well, what um, were the products and services that first company was aimed at? Yeah. So the main one was just outsource software development, which I, I guess was telling at, at, in the first
1: place, right? Like I, my background's in software, I'm, I'm a software engineer from way back and we didn't know what we wanted to build, so we just thought we'd, we'd offer help for other people building their things and start a, a service business. We, we dabbled with our own products in there off and on as well, but just none of the, the products we built, none of, the, none of it was where my passion was. My passion was always in the meta of how we work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, the, that was the strength. We did a software company, for those familiar with that, we were doing agile methods in an outsourced basis way before that was normal. Um, we were one of the only software firms in the world at that time doing agile methods for outsource development.
0: Um, was that based off of I an mean, exposure to those or was that, did that kind of organically emerged? I guess, um, was it intentional to embrace those methods or was it kind of oh, yeah. like what you stumbled upon?
1: Yeah, I, I was kind of early in that movement. Um, one of the, the very, very beginning uh, early adopters of, of agile methods. And then I knew many of the people behind the methods and Um, it just made so much intuitive sense to me and, and, and actually a lot of holacracy then grew out of how do I take these, these principles that are working so well and so differently for building software and take them to everything about
0: how I build a company. Um, so that was kind of one of the founding questions that led to what's now holacracy. Gotcha. And, uh, I heard you mention in a previous talk that, um, you spent a brief time as a commercial pilot. Was that a performer career? Was that a recreational activity? What was what was yeah. the transition there? Uh, not a commercial pilot, a recreational pilot. A recreational uh, pilot.
1: Okay. Yeah, that was. Um, it's actually one of one of the other things that kind of inspired me on the journey towards holacracy was uh, early in my my flight training. I was this was purely for fun. I was just enjoying it. Um, but I was a student pilot at the time, and uh, in my um, I had twenty hours of flight flight time, and I was doing my first cross-country solo flight, which means no instructor with me, right, alone in the airplane flying hundreds of miles away. And, and this is, you know, they, they actually let you get up in an airplane and fly it with 20 hours of experience. I was kind of surprised with no one with me. But while I was doing this, the low voltage light came on on my instrument panel. And, you know, they don't teach you much about the hardware. So I had no idea what that really meant. And my instinct was check the other instruments, and I checked every other instrument, every gauge on that dashboard, and every single other gauge said, everything's fine. No anomalies, nothing reporting, anything wrong. So I, I ignored it. I, I figured it must not be that big of a deal. I'm going to ignore the low voltage light and keep flying. And it turns out that's a really bad decision, right? <laughs> turns out it's tuned into information that none of the other, other instruments are sensing. And I nearly crashed the plane. I ended up completely lost with no electronics, no radios, no lights, uh, almost out of fuel, in a storm, violating international airspace. And it was bad. And I, I did make it down. But as I'm reflecting on this, I realize this is what's happening in companies all the time. It's, it's we humans that become the sensors. We're, we're the instruments. We sense things on behalf of, behalf of our organizations. And often, so often, I had the experience in my past companies of I would see something, I knew it was an issue, I knew it could be improved, and I couldn't drive change. It was like the whole system was, was built to resist change. And then I saw other people running into the same thing again and again, and that for me, I guess a near-death experience <laughs> kinda kind of you know, shakes you a bit, but for me that was like what started me down this road of how do I build a company where that doesn't happen, where anything, sensed by anyone, anywhere in the firm, can drive meaningful change.
2: Yeah, Brian. Uh, So before we dive into Holacris, I I also have a story regarding um, uh, how I think authority plays in when you're flying a plane, actually, a a commercial airline between the pilot and the co-pilot. But just before that, um, you know, could you uh, backtrack a bit? Where did you grow up? Was it here in Austin? Were there some things about your childhood that sort of led to having an entrepreneurial streak or yeah, could you just describe that? A little
1: bit? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a new transplant to Austin. I just moved here about a year and a half ago. Um, okay. I grew up mostly on the East Coast in um, a few different places, but mostly New Jersey for most of my childhood. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been, I, I've actually started coding really young. I, I learned to read on software development manuals. Wow. <laughs> um, and I never really, school didn't really work for me. So I would end up skipping like half the days of school and just coding and so I'd spend, like, know yeah, probably a full-time job equivalent coding from, like, age seven <laughs> throughout most of childhood. Uh, but I was also really social. So, you know, I, I wanted to do something with others. So I would end up enrolling my friends, and we'd build video games. And, like, you know, I'd have different friends doing art and design and story and writing. And, like, every now and then I actually found one of my best friends growing up was a, another young kid that liked coding. Um, so, like, we, we would just form these little teams. And... Um, I kind of gave me a taste of like just doing my own thing, and um, and then I find I started teaching coding online, and this was pre-internet, um, early online network. I was 13, and people were paying me to teach them to code. They had no idea how old I was, awesome. um, so that was fun. So I, I don't know. I just from early on just kind of liked the freedom of doing my own thing and and the the creation, the creativity of it.
0: Were mm-hmm. um, you me, uh, were either of your parents entrepreneurs did you feel like that was sort of encouraged or was that environment set up well
1: um it wasn't and neither of them were not really i mean both of them maybe dabbled a little but um it was more uh you know my mother mostly raised me and and she just gave me so much support and encouragement to follow my own energy my own passion um and i i think that and to, to challenge and question the systems around me which also leads to my work with holacracy big time so when there was something where I just thought something didn't make any sense in the school system around me or whatever, instead of just forcing me to conform, my mother would send a clear message that, look, you know, if this is really right for you and the system doesn't support it, there's something wrong with the system. And, and I, there was enough of uh, supporting my own development, you know, through that, that uh, gave me a confidence to question the systems around me and to challenge the authority structures around me. And... Um, and I think that weaved right into my work with holacracy later.
0: That's uh, I think that's really interesting to kind of put that in context. Do you have any idea what um, kind of gave your mother the courage or the determination to to build up that environment? What what sort of challenge systems did she challenge? Did you see that sort of reflected in her values? Uh,
1: yeah, actually, and, and ironically, uh, it's fascinating how this stuff works. What work, What I think what did it? She had a ridiculously shitty childhood, like pretty much unimaginably bad, all different forms of abuse. I mean, it was horrible. Right. And, and it was like everything you shouldn't do. And raising a kid, she, you know, probably had some of it in her, her upbringing and, and for her, that led her to basically take a, a stance of, she saw the cycle of abuse. She saw how her sisters would just perpetuate it. You know, I have, I, I my cousin's in jail, his mother committed suicide. Like, she saw that in her family and she said, I want to break the cycle. Mm-hmm. Right? I do not want to, to raise a child the way I was raised. I want to question everything and mm-hmm. I want to raise him differently. And she did. And I think that really gave me this ground to, to be outside the ordinary of uh, you know, uh, the way t- typical you know, child bringing in systems schools and all that. Like, I had freedom to, to, with her, question everything.
0: Yeah. Did that translate to homeschooling and things like that? Or was it more just, here's these institutions, you can you can be a part of them, but don't feel beholden to them? Uh, it, it led to dropping
1: out. I dropped out of uh, middle school and then kind of, uh, that wasn't exactly legal. So we, we <laughs> worked out a deal with the principal and kind of fudged it. And I went to high school, dropped out of high school, <laughs> talked my way into college after a year of high school. Um, and then dropped out of college after a year. <laughs> <better>. <laughs> so I, I started in the working world like my first corporate job was when I was 16. Um, oh, gotcha. I dropped out of college.
0: <laughs> what you, where did, where, was, where were you uh, briefly in college? Uh, very
1: briefly at uh, Stevens Institute of Technology is uh, right outside of New York City yeah, gotcha. Technology School and I found by that point I knew more about coding than my professors did so this seemed ridiculous. <laughs>
2: So, uh, why did you decide to enter corporations at that point? Or was or was that just where the money was? Uh, it was really not even
1: thinking about money per se. I, I was just looking for fun things to create and build. For me, the coding was always a creative endeavor. It was, I, I wasn't your stereotypical like math science kid. I mean, I, I'm relatively smart, but for me, it was it was the creativity of it. I wanted to to build something. So. Um, I, for a while I, I actually taught college after I dropped out. <laughs> that was interesting a little one year trade school and I was uh, sixteen or seventeen or something um, and then uh, I found a job at an aerospace company uh, which was building real time 3 d simulation software, which at that point in time real time 3 d was not like something that was very done and um, and it was I, it was used to explore space i was involved leading the architecture of a software tool that was used to fly satellites to Mars and like really cool stuff. So for me, it was, that was the draw I wanted to, I wanted to create, I wanted to build. Um, And that's why eventually I found it was just so surprising. At at first, I thought it would be the technical obstacles that would stop the creativity in the building. And it wasn't, it was the human systems around me that was reliably the, the bigger obstacle than anything in the software
0: architecture. One more vignette i 'd love to pull from you before we move on uh, what 's a game that you and your friends built way back when oh man uh,
1: we, we, so my, my favorite uh, projects were we built a couple of real time strategy games back in the like very beginning before real time strategy was really even a category um, and uh, yeah, it was I think we played the original dune uh, <laughs> which old game, and that just totally inspired us, so we started looking at. How do we do multiplayer ones? And it's again, pre internet. So they were dial up based um, uh, multiplayer real time strategy games that we were
0: building. And, Very cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We can, uh, you know, you can find it on Steam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing that actually made it to commercial release
1: at the time, but we built some really cool demos. <laughs> wow. Very cool.
2: Brian, so can I ask you, I mean, uh, one word that stood out for me um, from seeing your other talks or discussions was this word of, uh, or this term of social technology. Could you sort of define that and what that means to holacracy or even things beyond holacracy?
1: Yeah, so there's so much talk of technology and innovation in our our world today, but most of it's referring to uh, what are called physical technologies. So, uh, things like well either devices directly or even software i count as a physical technology, and that it 's a you know, something you can uh, point to it 's a technology that that is, is uh, breaks down to wires or bits or whatever
2: um, is made with versus, wire.
1: yeah exactly right, yeah, versus a social technology, which um, I think is often off the radar of, of what we see and talk about and think about, but it 's a technology of how we organize. Uh, democracy uh, is, is a social technology, right? For example, um, uh, I, I, monarchy is a social technology, a different one that, you know, came a little earlier. And, um, so these are different ways of, of human organization and, and so is management hierarchy, right? The way we organize companies, we often think of it as a given, like there's no other way, but it's not, it's a technology choice. It's a, it's an operating system or a platform that everything else gets built on top of. And, um, uh, I think at this point, there's so much awareness in our world of the importance of technology innovation in the physical technologies, but there's so little in the social technologies. And I actually think right now, so many of the, the huge gains that we're going to see um, that are available to us in our organizations are not... Physical technologies alone, they go hand in hand. New physical technologies enable different social technology. Right? We can do more in a world with the Internet in our social technologies than we possibly could before. Right? Slack in, in organizations enables new ways of, of virtual working, which we're all like, experiencing now. Right. Um, so there's new social technologies of how we work together that are enabled by the physical technologies and vice versa. Um, but I, I really think the social technology gets so underlooked. So I, I tend to focus a lot on that. And that's what my work's all about as well.
0: Perhaps we could just think of the kind of co evolution of the literal assembly line, the, the hardware of the assembly line, and then the people that specialize in a skill set and, like, I guess how that management hierarchy kind of reflects that. Yeah. Um, and it built. seems that they kind of need to go in lockstep in some ways. Um, there has to be kind of innovation on both. Yeah, I mean, if you look at kind of modern management,
1: uh, it's mostly in the form we're still practicing, it really emerged with the telegraph. And it was the invention of the telegraph itself, which suddenly shortened distances. Before the telegraph, you couldn't coordinate at scale as a single entity. You kind of had to run things as really decentralized entities. But then the telegraph enabled a completely different way of communicating Right, which then enabled different organization forms. So we had the railroads that were suddenly trying to do this massive coordination across great geographic distances. And the telegraph actually enabled a different type of coordination, and that led to what is now kind of the modern mainstream way of management. And unfortunately, I'd say, has stayed the modern mainstream way, right? We're, we're using the same social technology to manage companies that we did when the telegraph was an exciting new invention, right? And the world has evolved a lot since then, and I think there's where we have a lot of opportunity to evolve the, the social technology of how we organize as well. Um, we haven't yet seen major leaps in innovations
0: at a fundamental level in management since the invention of the internet. And I do think that changed everything. And so what, what are those? So let's go ahead and define those terms as far as what, um, what's the pivot? What's the mutation that uh, sort of holacracy is? Um, what is holacracy if we're going to define it an, as an evolution of that management uh, system? Yeah, it's basically a different way of achieving some of the same goals as a
1: management hierarchy. It's a different framework. So we're used to getting the things we need. We need order. We need alignment. We need to break down work. We need to figure out who's doing what, who makes which decisions, right? Um, We need these things. Management hierarchy is one way of providing them, and it actually works reasonably well. It has worked reasonably well until complexity hits a certain point. Management hierarchy starts really failing once complexity goes, goes up past some, some threshold. Holacracy is an alternate framework, but it achieves the same thing, right? It still gets you order, structure, alignment, work breakdown, um, all the things you need from management hierarchy, Holacracy provides the same outputs, but the way of getting there is radically different. It does not use a hierarchy, a command hierarchy of managers or people who can tell who, others what to do, right? It doesn't break work down through a command hierarchy. It has a different way of getting there. It's still structured, it's still ordered, it's still all of the things that we need for management hierarchy, but it's a really different
0: framework. It's management without managers. So what, if you're gonna define the kind of core, I guess, bricks in the wall that kind of make Holacracy what it is, a flat organizational structure or lack of, manag- lack of official managers, would be one of those. What are the other sort of core components? Yeah. So I actually wouldn't say that. And this is one of the, the common
1: misconceptions, right? People will often call it flat, but I think that misses the point. When people hear flat or no managers, they often imagine what we're used to minus managers or flat implies, you know, there's still a CEO boss kind of person, but there's not a hierarchy. Then it's just kind of everybody flatly reporting to that person or something, or people hear flat and they imagine consensus. Everyone calls big meetings to decide things. So, to, to hit on two common misconceptions, uh, one is when people hear me say Holacracy has no managers, they often hear no structure. And that's not true. Companies running with Holacracy are more structured, not less than management hierarchy. It is not flat. It's highly structured. Right? There's clear roles. So it's, it's a role-based system. It focuses on defining what are the roles. People fill many roles, maybe in multiple parts of the company, right? I have 20-some roles in my organization. Each role is a function I fill. It's highly structured. It's clear. It's defined. I know exactly what's expected of me in the roles. I know what others can ask me to do. I know what I have the authority to do. Another common misconception is when you have no managers, you must make all decisions in meetings and groups and consensus. Holacracy uses less of those things than management hierarchy, not more. It's more autocratic. The difference is it's a decentralized autocracy. So it focuses on clarifying who makes which decisions and then giving those people freedom to lead in that area. So I know in my roles, I'm like the CEO of my roles, and so is everyone else I work with. They're the CEO of their roles. They get to make autocratic decisions in these areas. If they want to get input in a meeting, they're welcome to, but it's theirs to lead. They do not need buy-in. They do not need consensus. They don't need to call that big meeting. So it's, it's not about group decision-making, but it is about inviting everyone to be part of structuring what are the roles, who makes which decisions, what are the boundaries of the decision-making. And for that, this is one of the other building blocks, is a governance process. So Holacracy defines a governance process that focuses on doing the work that we often want a manager to do, right? We ideally want a manager to create clarity on a team, right? We, what we don't want is what we get. We, we often get managers micromanaging. They jump in and they make decisions for everybody. Often they don't even mean to. People defer their power to them and the manager just nods approvingly or gives them an idea and someone takes that as a command. We have a command hierarchy of micromanagement. But ideally what we want in a management hierarchy is a manager, I I think what most people want, what I would want is a manager that focuses on creating clarity. That says, here's your role, right? Here's your expectations. Here are the boundaries. Within these boundaries, you don't need to talk to me or anyone else. You go make your decisions, lead. And if you want to go outside these boundaries, then you need to go get these people involved in these ways for these reasons, and here are your goals and good luck, right? That's what we want of a manager. Holacracy uses a governance process to do that work. So instead of putting that burden on one manager, which is really tough, it's really hard to do that well. Um, And when you get lucky enough to get a manager who does that well, they will very quickly get promoted and replaced by somebody who doesn't do that well, because they're not enough to go around. So Holacracy adds this governance process, and everyone on the team, not just one person, is invited into this governance process. So every team does it. Every team's running these governance meetings maybe once a month, and you can also do it asynchronously, and there's ways to do that too. But with the meeting process, about once a month, everyone gathers, and anyone can propose changing any of the roles on the team, any of the processes on the team, or any of the policies for that team's work. Right? Uh, they can create new roles, combine roles, split split roles, add expectations on roles. Right? So this is how we get alignment. This is what a manager ideally does. But now it's everyone involved in it, not just one person. And it's forcing. The process gives you guide rails and forces you to create clarity, not micromanage. You can't go to the governance meeting and make specific decisions to force them on people. right? Like, so my company, we do a lot of trainings. We don't use our governance process, our governance meetings to decide what city are we going to open our next training in we use our governance process to decide we need a role that's going to decide which cities to open trainings in and that role is going to come with some responsibilities to go along with the power to decide that right Um, and they need to get market research from marketing and at least consider it still up to them but there's a, a connection there right maybe they have some limits on what they can do who knows we define that in our governance process and then we empower the person to go lead the role operationally outside of the governance process. So again, that's hard to describe as flat. It's about breaking up the the structure and giving
0: lots of leadership. There's no management hierarchy, but there is structure. What would the actual um, mechanism of that governance structure be?
1: Yeah, the the meeting process is pretty cool. It's, um, there's a decision-making process used. Anyone can bring a proposal and proposed changing the governance of the team, the roles or policies of the team. Um, but to, to, to get that change enacted, there's a few steps in there where people can ask questions and give some, some input, but the, the heart of it comes down to this. We're never asking anyone for consensus. We're never asking, do you agree with this change? Right? We're asking, do you see any reasons why ch- this change, the proposed change, do you see any reasons why that will, will get in your way of doing your work? And if everyone says no, it doesn't matter whether, whether everyone else thinks it's a bad idea. If it's not going to get in the way of anyone else's work, it's automatically adopted by default. And if somebody says yes, that will get in the way of my work, they have, a, a, they have to hit a threshold of here's why. There's some questions they get asked that kind of vet that and make sure it's really a real reason we really have to deal with. And that doesn't stop the proposal. It gives us a puzzle to solve, right? Then we start brainstorming. How do we get the need met without getting in the way and that person getting this work done for this reason, right? So it's a really interesting process. And that's really where power lies. Uh, So I have a a story that I just love that illustrates that. Um, It's it's a true story way back in my company's history. uh, I I do a lot of public speaking, at least, you know, (laughs) pre-pandemic. I would travel around to a lot of conferences and all that. And we have a, uh, I have a role that I do that in. It's my spokesperson role. And we have another role that I work with uh, called casting agent. And the casting agent role has to get all the inquiries we get inviting me to speak and sort through them. And, and so what happened many years back, the woman filling that role, she would negotiate with a conference organizer, right? She'd talk about you know, the details of the talk, um, build a whole plan with them, and then she'd present it to me. And often at the end of her process, I'd shoot it down. I'd say, you know, no, I don't think it's worth my time, right? Wrong market, or it's not big enough, or whatever. And you can imagine how she felt, right? Like, that's disempowering. She felt awful. She built a relationship. She negotiated, and then the rug was pulled out from under her at the end. So what actually happened, she showed up in our governance meeting, and she said, I'd like to add an expectation, we call it an accountability, on the spokesperson role. I'd like to expect the spokesperson is accountable for defining and publishing the criteria you use to accept speaking engagements or not. Because if I could see that criteria, I could assess it myself in the beginning of my process before wasting all that time and energy. And it went through that process and everyone was asked, do you see any reasons why this will get in your way of doing your work to expect that of spokesperson? No one did, so it took two minutes and we had a new expectation added onto my role and then after the meeting, she could turn to me and say, so, when do you think you'll have that done for me, by? And <laughs> you had a little more homework. <laughs> yeah, right? What I love about this story, though, is I'm the founder of the company and a seasoned CEO before that. She was our newest hire right out of college, right? And what companies do you know where the newest hire right out of college in two minutes can add an expectation onto the founder and then turn to him and say, when will you have that done for
0: me, by?
2: That's but let- empowering.
0: Let's Mm -hmm. say that you, for some reason, I guess, like, I'm always thinking about how does any sort of social system function when not everyone is behaving at their best? Yep. Um, And, you know, one of the beauties about markets is that people can pursue their uh, completely self-centered goals and it produces excess wealth for everyone. Um, And in an organization like this, I'm curious about enforcement mechanisms. I'm curious about uh, weeding out bad actors. I'm curious about uh, removing freeloaders, all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. So you still need all of those just like you would in a management hierarchy. And that doesn't, Holacracy does not remove the need for that. Um, What it gives you is a process for defining that. So, you know, do you have a way to fire people in a management hierarchy? You're going to need that in Holacracy powered companies too. Now, you're going to have to get creative with it because there's no managers, right? Uh, But frankly, I think that that's a really good constraint. Even in a management hierarchy, how often does the manager have a complete view of somebody's performance such that you want to vest complete control of a fire decision in their hands? I'd say in most management hierarchies, in most contexts, that's not a complete picture and it's a dangerous power to centralize like that. Mm -hmm. So even in a management hierarchy, you do well to get creative and say, how do we define a better process than just one person besides firing? Holacracy just forces that. So, you know, as an example, my company has a unique way to fire people. And I can genuinely tell you, I love how we fire people, Mm. I don't know how many companies can say, I love how we fire people. It's heartfelt. It's, it's human. We fired people and had them become our customers, right? I had a guy staying at my house for two weeks over Christmas last year, who I partly fired from my company. And he's still a good friend. Um, and, and that's because we couldn't just rely on managers, so we defined a process. Holacracy didn't give us that process, and, and this is what's so beautiful about it to me. It doesn't say, here's how to deal with freeloaders, or here's how to fire people, or whatever. What it does is give you a governance framework. And that framework has some built-in protections we can talk about in a minute, but in that framework it says, you can use this to update any other process. So how you hire, fire, budget, pay people, you know, whatever any other process can be changed in most companies. However you fire people, you're kind of stuck with it. And it's really hard to learn and iterate and improve that process. Companies running with Holacracy, they may start with the same way of firing someone that a management hierarchy does, but which we did, you know, 10 years ago, we fired our first person and it sucked. I mean, it was, it was awful. It was, it felt terrible and it had all sorts of cultural impact. So someone showed up in a governance meeting and said, that sucked. I'm going to propose a change to our firing process. Right? Here's the specific thing that happened and this change would help. And the next time we had to fire someone, it sucked a little less. And then the next time a little less. And that that cycle continued for years as we iterated on our firing process until now it's really reliable. We fire people faster than most companies do. And yet more humanely I'd say as well. Right. Uh, and with more heads in the game, more perspectives. Um, so, And that's not because Holacracy gave us the one right way to fire people. It's because it let us experiment and adapt and evolve.
0: uh, I think you've used in a previous talk the word constitution to kind of define the basic core rule set. And it seems like that's sort of essentially what what the core product is, is a a constitution by which decisions are made. Yep, exactly. Uh, Holacracy is, it's an open source constitution document that's used by, there's more
1: than a thousand companies now running with that constitution. And it's what gives you the, the kind of shift of power. The CEO signs the constitution to adopt it and says, I'm no longer a king above the law. We now have a rule of law, right? This is the ultimate governing paradigm. It holds power. And all that constitution defines is the governance process And what you create the language of roles and you know what that means what a role definition is the power given to a role it's not telling you which roles you should have it's not telling you how you should hire fire budget or anything else it's giving you the meta framework the replacement for management hierarchy and it's having that written constitution that lets you do this like formal shift of power here are the rules of the game like any sport right? You don't just get on a field and like, you know, the strongest person just dictates the rules to the rest, right? You don't use social pressure to get the rules. You have a rule book, right? You go play soccer. There's uh, rules. You, you don't need to, if you, if you ever look at the rule book of soccer, it's 144 pages, the official FIFA manual, right? You'd probably read it. And if you had never seen soccer, say that looks like a bureaucratic sport, but it's not. It's, it's giving you a framework within which
0: people can self-organize and adapt and just play a game. Similar with Holacracy. Um, reminds me a little bit. And uh, sorry, let you, I'll let you chime in just a second, Jay, because I know you've got a question. Um, uh, there's a phrase that I read, which was, uh, don't scar on the first cut. Um, and it was, um, it was referring to how companies adopt policies based off of mishaps. So the idea of basically company policy responses become um, responses to their missteps. Um, And and over time, large companies, and I can say this working at a very large company now, um, incredible amounts of scar tissue, uh, incredible amounts of bureaucratic processes that have been added on to deal with um, lawsuits and all these other things that have accumulated over time. Some of these things are internal decisions that companies kind of, I guess, the culture sort of shoves them into and they don't interrupt it and they potentially could. But some of these are imposed outside. Some of these are, are from outside. Some of these are imposed by legal institutions, by governments, uh, by uh, the realities of the world we live in. Um, like if let's let's think of an example of a of a financial company in which um, trading uh, puts the company at risk. Insider trading or, or, or um, potentially taking risks with capital that belongs to the company puts the whole company at risk. So an individual employee, therefore, um, having that much autonomy and that lack of oversight might significantly uh, put at risk the whole company at large. For situations like that, um, it seems like this sort of really distributed power structure might be vulnerable, but I'm curious what you think.
1: Yeah, there are actually a whole lot of uh, either regulated entities uh, or even government agencies. There are multiple government agencies now running with Holacracy. Um, and uh, it's, it's at first, you know, again, the myth of unstructured. People have a hard time imagining how it can work when you have these external constraints that you have to honor. But the reality is Holacracy is more structured. The structure is just more agile at the same time. So if you have external constraints, those might not be agile. But at least you can be really clear on what they were, what they are and then agilely work around them. So I've seen this in the government agencies that do holacracy, that have you know, mountains of laws that they have to align with. It's crazy, the bureaucracy, and they can't change them. But what they can do is say, within these external constraints, let's encode them in our governance. These are fixed, we can't change them. But now how do we get as creative as possible around them? Right? Um, and uh, it, it's, I also see um, the scar tissue analogy, I love that. The thing I, that gets interesting though, It's actually not a problem at all to put in place policies from one-off things as long as they're equally easy to remove. And in most companies, that's not true, which is why I I really resonate with the advice in a typical company. Be damn careful what policies you put in place for dealing with that one-off weird case, because you're probably going to get stuck with it for decades. And it's going to have massive tax, just productivity tax for years, and it's going to be really hard to change. But Holacracy changes that game. Things get as easy to change as they are to put in place. You can remove policies just as easy. So now it actually becomes really safe to say, and unless you take a different stance, which is don't put in place anything until you actually know it's needed. Start with no structure, start with open freedom as much as possible. And let's learn where we really do need to constrain something. And let's put in place a policy and don't worry about it because it's not going to become scar tissue. If the next week or the next month someone says, wait, We overdid it with that policy. It's getting in my way of doing this thing. They're going to come back and they're going to pare down the policy. And we're going to let it evolve into just the right constraint, right? Which is exactly what I see happening in companies running with Holacracy. So it suddenly becomes okay to just react to that one-off thing and learn from it because you're going to keep learning from it, keep honing it.
2: Great. Brian, so I wanted to ask about that, like the rollout as it's been. I know Zappos has been one of your big... uh successful or large-scale companies. Um, what was that like? I mean, where, did Tony approach you? Did you go there and how, what was the role like at Zappos?
1: Yeah, I actually ran into Tony at a conference we were both speaking at um, and I didn't even know who the guy was. My talk was first. Um, he got really interested at my talk, he came up afterwards and asked me, you know, a, a ton of questions. Um, And it was largely about like self-organization and would Holacracy allow a company to run more like a city? He shared some research that as cities grow in size, they get more innovative. The average innovation per resident goes up as a city grows. But when a company grows, the average innovation per employee goes down, not up. (laughs) So he was looking for a way to run Zappos more like a city with the benefits that he saw from self-organization and innovation and markets and all that stuff internally in the company. And so he came up and asked me all these questions. I had no idea who the guy was. Um, Tony, if you've ever seen him, he's pretty much wears the same <laughs> t-shirt. And um, and uh, he does not look like your stereotypical CEO, let's just say that. So I don't know who this guy is, but I, I answered his questions. He was really interested. And uh, and then later he got on stage and gave his talk about this like amazing work he's doing. And I was like, oh, wow, he's doing some really cool stuff. So. I came up to him afterwards, we chatted, and uh, he just said, this is really cool. Come out and talk to my team about it. And so I did, and kind of one thing led to another. The rollout is another, that's a challenge. That's a 1,500 employee, 1,600 employee organization. Uh, This is a massive change. This is changing the way people, you know, lead, structure, follow, uh, relate to power. Ultimately, like this takes deep habit change. Um, it's sometimes changing people's identity. You know, a lot of people get identified. They get their self-esteem from being a manager and having this many reports and status and ego. And so this is undermining so much of, of the the framework that people are used to and replacing it. But the the shift is huge. So rollout is, we learned a lot in that one, we're learning in every one of them now, There's and there's not just us, there's a whole team of um, Holacracy coaches uh, around the world now doing this work, and we have an annual conference where we all come together and learn, and there's just tons of learning about how to support this level of massive behavior change uh, in the organization.
2: Was there a lot of attrition? Did people not like that new system at Zappos, and did people leave because of that, or...?
1: Yeah, that gets misreported all the time. Um, it's, uh, the, it's been funny watching the way the press works in this, which is why I love doing podcasts and really hate Gives doing media. you a chance personally. to share it yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, it's, so what Zappos did, actually I thought was pretty cool, they offered everyone upfront. They know in any change, there's been studies on this, in any massive change effort, you're gonna lose a percentage of people, right? holacracy is no different i don't think it's more or less it's like any other major change you're going to lose some people right but what zappos did instead of having people resist the change for potentially years and filter out over time they just told everyone we're going to give you a massive buyout if you just want to quit up front instead of being part of this and they offered it was an average of about six months of pay right i mean it's huge and they're a call center right the average annual turnover of a call center in the U.S. without an offer like that is in the 80%, you know, 87%. They had, I forget the number, it was somewhere around 20% or something um, of people accept that offer. Now, the the irony is the press read like mass exodus at Zappos, you know, 20% of staff quits over holacracy. They often don't mention that they were getting paid six months of pay. um, And they rarely mention that like, if anything, the headline should have read a call center, which averages 80% normal annual turnover, offers people six months of pay, and only 20% of them took the offer. That is shocking to me. I'm shocked they didn't have more, right? Um, And I think that says a lot, not about Holacracy, but about Zappos. Before they entered this, they had a really strong culture. They had a clear mission. They were a strong business going into this, right? and so they had a lot of people that were happy to turn down a huge offer to stick around and be part of what really you could call an experiment. Uh, Holacracy had been around for a while before that, but never been deployed at that scale.
0: And yeah. Is that still the largest scale at which it's been deployed? No, I think they were beat uh, uh, recently by a Russian bank, <laughs> which is slightly larger. Um,
1: they're, they're new, they're still on the journey, we'll see how they do, but... Um, and then there's been several others now that are around that size, plus or minus, um, or a couple others anyway. Um, and there's also been much larger companies that have adopted just at a department level. So smaller adoption, but in a larger business.
2: Yeah, so do you think, do you dream of like trying to transform a 100,000 person company? into? Oh man, or?
1: that sounds like a nightmare. I wouldn't say no okay. uh, to the, the opportunity, but <laughs> I wouldn't say I dream of that. <laughs> okay. Um, you know what I dream of with this is it's finding the founders or CEOs that really get it. Those are the ones to me, like I had, I had one come to me, he was a founder, he had been building his company for like seven years, and he said before Holacracy, I haven't taken a vacation with my family in seven years. And after this, I actually had the confidence that I took a two week off the grid vacation with no cell phone access. And, and he was, you could just hear it in his voice, it was liberating. Right? And, and he got it. And it was helping him have the company he'd always dreamed of. Right? It, mm-hmm. The people I dream of supporting are the ones that have a vision. They, they already have a different value system, different vision. They're looking for a way to, to be an environment that deeply empowers people, that is purpose-oriented, that is meaningful, that like, they're trying to change the game already. And maybe they're frustrated because they don't quite know how to. And Holacracy gives them a tool to do the thing they want to do anyway. Those are the people I dream about working with. I don't care whether they're 10 people companies or a thousand people, you know, it's it's really about the leader.
2: Well, it's also true that if the CEO has uh, bought in to the vision, it's much more likely that it can can actually roll out in their organization. Oh
1: yeah, it's so hard. We've seen adoption succeed in in departments, but it's it's harder. And even then you need at least a department head who is really, really bought in and on board. Um, You need that, yeah, to make the change.
0: An opportunity to, I think uh, when I first talked to you uh, uh, last year at some point, I, I heard the word holacracy and the first company that came to my mind was Valve and you corrected me that that is in fact is not holacracy. So uh, to get it on the record, because um, I think Valve is closely associated with this, uh, what exactly is the story there? Yeah, Valve has absolutely nothing to do with holacracy. It is a symptom of bad reporting, which um,
1: again, uh, everything I've seen in the press is it's pretty wild, uh, just, just how misinformed it often is. Uh, that was one of them, it's been reported, and then once it's reported once, other press will start citing it as their source and it, it spreads like a virus. Um, so yeah, Valve is not. Valve is, they're doing a form of self-management, which is the broader umbrella that you might put Holacracy in, but Holacracy is a specific framework for self-management that aims at replacing the management hierarchy with a different framework for achieving order and alignment. Valve is more just throw out management hierarchy and let politics and uh, run. <laughs> so there's some. I mean, I, I respect Valve and what they do a lot. I love that they're pioneering in self-management. And I've heard some really, really uh, painful stories <laughs> that come from that. I think when you just throw out management hierarchy without replacing it with something equally uh, clear, you end up with a very insidious shadow power structure that is not always the conscious one you want. And you know, if it works for a company, Valve or anyone, great. And I think it's a lot more likely to fail from what I've seen. And that's also where I started when I was on my journey of experimentation. One of the first things I did was just try throwing out the existing structure. And I learned very quickly that didn't create the kind of environment that I wanted. Um, I needed to replace it with something.
0: And so is it safe to say you're not an anarchist?
1: (laughs) It depends how you define that word. Um, Actually, if you look at the Greek root of the word, then I'm absolutely an anarchist. Uh, But the Greek root, people think it means, you know, chaos and disorder, and it doesn't. The word comes from an, meaning without, plus archon, uh, or archos, meaning rulers. It's not without rules, it's without rulers. So you could even call holacracy a rule system, a rule set for anarchy. right? In other words, rules, but not rulers. And that to me is really the spirit of holacracy. It's it's not organizing people in these, these command hierarchies of rulers and ruled. But it is a really clear structured rule set that allows people the freedom to self-organize and adapt locally.
0: So where did this come from? Like where from your you know, position of being curious and being frustrated, what yeah. books did you read or what arguments were you exposed to that laid those foundational kind of you know, bricks in the wall to build this up? Yeah, so it actually didn't come from ideas or
1: principles. Uh, which is, is what, you know, you would naturally assume that's where I think most things today come from. Somebody gets an idea, they, they do some research, or whatever, they build some principles, and then they try to build a system to enact them. And that is not what happened. <laughs> hey.
0: um,
1: it, it's much more empirical. Holacracy came from experimentation, first and foremost. It came from just looking at what works and running a thousand experiments, um, keeping what works, changing what, what doesn't. It, ironically, that's the same thing Holacracy does inside of a company, right? It, it lets the company just experiment. Like I, my example with our firing process where we just kept experimenting and try things, kept what works, changed what didn't. That's where Holacracy came from. It was, you know, I read any random book that had some process on you know, better meeting processes. Well, let's try that. Or here, here's a way to clarify who does what, let's try that. Um, so we need something say- for this, let's try something. Often the things we tried first were terrible ideas. The ones that came from my principles are mostly the ones that ended up on the cutting room floor. Right? The ones that were like, I've got a good idea. I have a principle. Let me enact it. More often than not, failed. Um, but we learned from those failures, and we tried something different, and we kept iterating. So holacracy came from just a- a- empirical, experimental what works. And in many ways, it's counterintuitive um, because of that. It's not the system I would have designed if I had gone out and said, let me you know, envision what I think should happen based on all the principles I have of management and apply it. Um, you can extract principles from it now. When I look at it, right? Like I have friends. I love this. Uh, often I'll, I'll share it with somebody, or they'll attend my training, and they'll come up all excited, and they'll say, "Oh my God, you must know the work of so and so because all the principles that like they look at you, you have enacted, right?" And I say, "I've never heard of that person, right?" Um, and and it's because you can see in it so much wisdom that has just been experimentally discovered right? Not enacted by design.
0: This isn't an intelligent design. It's an evolutionary design. Um, I'm curious uh, whether, uh, I guess, the idea, uh, a book that I've, uh, was a really big, probably my favorite book of last year, um, was a book uh, called The Secret to Our Success, um, which is written by an anthropologist. And it's about uh, basically looking at culture and the knowledge encoded in culture as, a kind of a, as, a, as, a, as an adaptive rule set, um, something that basically gets iterated on and is an emergent thing that over generations and generations and generations and through competition with each other with uh, different cultures, um, the highest performing rule set kind of emerges as superior. Um, and it seems like trying to encode these principles in the way of organizational sort of iteration.
1: Yeah. Again, uh, I'd say that's exactly what Holacracy does, not because I was trying to do that necessarily, but just because we found doing that works, right? right. Allowing the rules that work to stay and the rules that don't to change just makes sense when you're trying to find what's the best way to express a purpose, which is really the center question of all of this. How do we free people to contribute best to a purpose that we're trying to express together? Right. what works.
0: One of the potential, I guess, costs of this process is that you can end up some really bad mutations. Yep. You can end up with mutations that are potentially devastating or even life threatening. Yep. Um, are there any stories of that has the, that you can sort of share from the front lines as far as watching these implementations and then seeing it kind of go off or maybe adopt a mutation that drove a company uh, off or into the ground or something like that?
1: Um, I haven't seen it to the level of driving a company into the ground, uh, mostly because you're running lots of small experiments more often, and when you do need to run a big one, I think just the the people that practice holacracy have kind of been trained uh, how do we make smaller experiments instead of bigger ones? Um, there's a principle that Jim Collins writes about, uh, fire bullets, then cannonballs. When he studied successful companies in turbulent times, he found they were the ones that didn't commit to big, bold decisions. They were the ones that did lots of little experiments until they found ones that consistently worked and then they committed to those more fully. And I think that is just a a natural outcome of practicing Holacracy. You just kind of get that, you know? It's like the whole system is is in practice for that. So, uh, but what I have seen is lots of missed bullets or failed experiments, right? Even in my own company, often somebody tries to solve something and they put in place some new governance or some new something, and it turns out to just totally not work. Um, sometimes it causes some, some damage. It's you know, never uh, sunk in the ship, but it's, it's definitely, we have lots of bad experiments. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's those that we learn from uh, often that lead to the, some of the best experiments we have. It's, oh, well, that didn't work. Why didn't that work? What happened? And what do we learn from it? What do we do? You know? um, like I said, we have a way of firing people I love because we fired somebody way long ago and it really sucked and it caused all sorts of damage. You know, so we learn from
2: it. So, Brian, in that same way, then, um, if somebody, so if someone implements a process that doesn't work in a traditional organization, that would look bad on them, right? That would affect their performance review and their stature in the company. So, I guess, in a, when you implement holacracy, you allow experimentation. But in that same vein, how do you encourage sort of promoting people? How do Accountability. You get- yeah, yeah. Or, uh, leveling up, moving up through an yeah. org or so one or of the things exist. I yeah, one of
1: the things I, I think you're pointing to is this is this requires a cultural change as well, right? If you try to adopt holacracy and you're still in this mindset of people should get everything right up front through lots of upfront analysis and the one right answer, that's gonna compete. It's gonna work against the shift. Um, right. Likewise, if you have people spending a lot of time managing their image um, you know, and how they look, instead of just Focusing on being vulnerable, being uh, you know, willing to share their mistakes, and that's going to work against holacracy. So a lot of the change here, it's, it's not just putting in place a new rule set. It's also changing the, the kind of meaning in the culture of things. Um, and those go hand in hand. The rules do push on that. They, they will almost force a change. You, you can't blame people for something when the rules clearly say the person was acting within the rules. So then that kind of starts changing the culture. And vice versa, you start shifting the culture and it makes it way easier to like really embody and enact these new rules. So it's a co-evolving thing. And a lot of the work we do when we're supporting a company is work on the cultural side. We help people get the meaning of the process, uh, change the way they relate to each other, right? So a lot of the work's on that front, um, which you know, it's not all about just putting in place new processes, that, that doesn't work if you don't get the, the change in the, the, the cultural framework. So it's both. And part of that change is then changing systems like your performance management system or, you know, what promotion even means, like all of that has to change. If you're still in the habit of promoting people and by looking at how many people do you get to control, <laughs> right, like that, that's just not gonna work anymore. So, uh, and, and if the promotions are even too much, um, well, even that aside, the way in most conventional companies, we promote has a lot to do with somebody playing the politics and the like looking good and that needs to change. Um, even having a single linear scale like often changes. So one of the other things we help with when we're, we're supporting a company is you probably got to change your firing process and your compensation process, right? Those two are, are kind of at the core of what reinforces
0: some of the current systems. So What's an example of a compensation process? That was actually my next question. Yeah.
1: yeah. So in my company, for example, um, if you want a raise, it's no one else's job to decide your compensation or to offer you a raise. It's your job to get a raise if you think that's warranted and you have a process to go through to do that. So the first thing you have to do, if you want a raise, uh, you have to write up, here are my strengths and weaknesses. Here's a complete profile of what I'm bringing, what I'm contributing and the things that limit me. And you have to get a certain number of people that work close, close with you to sign off on that and say, this is a complete picture, right? Then you have to go build a case for what you think you should be paid. Now, all the pay internally is transparent. So you can go to anyone else's pay and say, well, my write-up is similar to theirs. Or, you know, I think I'm bringing comparable value to you know, these two, more than that person and less than that person. So I'm going to triangulate and put myself here. Or you can go to you know, market surveys and data and bring that into the mix and say like, hey, look, you know, here's what generally the market values this, this at. And then you present that to a role filled by five people. Um, those five people can invite others, like people you work with, into the process as well. Um, and then that whole group, the five plus anyone they invited, has to answer a question, which is if you didn't work here at all, and we were hiring and you came in and you required this new salary to join. Would we advocate for hiring you or would we advocate against it at that new salary level? And you need more advocates for than advocates against, right? Uh, in order to get the race. So it's a strict majority in that, in that final step. Yeah. And neutral is an option as well. So okay. you need at least one advocate for all neutrals would be a no, right? And you need more fours than, than against, um, to get the race. and, uh, the interesting thing is when that's played out for us. Uh, I've seen people go through that um, again and again and again and get shot down again and again and again, right? And and that I think for all the right reasons, right? It wasn't a reasonable comparison. But now they've done the work to generate it, so they kind of know coming into it that they're kind of stretching things, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we just highlight what they probably already know in the meeting, and so they try again, and the same thing happens. But I've seen other cases. We had one guy who was working at the company. I think it was like six months. And he came in and he nearly doubled his pay and he deserved every penny because he would have been able to go get it somewhere else. He was adding immense value, right? He came in, he's, he had been a teacher before. He had a law degree, but wasn't doing anything with it. He was just teaching high school and um, he was brilliant and he did huge amounts of wonderful things for us. So he nearly doubled his pay like that after six months. And I'm glad he did because we might've lost him if, if he couldn't, you know, and in most companies, there's no way that would have happen. It was fair. Um, so, you know, that process we've also had, um, uh, the other thing I love about it, it, it's empowering, right? It's up to you to drive your compensation. No one else is going to be telling you what they think you should get paid. No one else is going to be, you know, in charge of, of, parenting you like a manager would to a subordinate and you know, telling you, you've been a good kid. I'm going to give you a, a reward, you know, changes the entire dynamic
0: when you're driving it. Um, as far as, um, so for instance, working at a large company, um, there's, let's say I have somebody that's coming in for a similar role as me, they're not, re- they're not replacing me, but uh, they're my peer. Um, and I discover that they're making a third more than me. Um, my, um, there's sort of a few things that I can think that can go through my brain. One is, of course, jealousy. Like, I'll, I'll experience envy. That's going to be one of the first things that I experience. Uh, another might be this person then becomes a reference point because then I can say, hey, look, this person made it in with this. I now can use that as a reference point to, to justify my own sort of increases. A third uh, might be that, like, I uh, now basically just have a – uh, I guess uh, just a, I guess perhaps a reiteration of the of second. It's just I have a, like a broader sort of notion of 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 being, of what's being paid. I also have no insight into the uh, costs of this person from the company's perspective. I don't actually know how much value this person is directly generating to the company because I'm not in finance and I, it's oftentimes intellectual work is very hard to quantify. Um, so like. From the perspective of having that other reference point, it's actually to my advantage to just forever to offer the highest pay possible to everyone that's coming in because they drive up my comparative. Um, So how how would you prevent something like that from happening when people that are not owners of the company may not care about the profitability as long as the company's still around? Or maybe they don't even have insight into the profitability.
1: So the five people I mentioned in that role for deciding the comp, the core five there are also the same five that do hiring and that's a role, but to opt into that role, you have to have made an investment in the company. Uh, so there is a, 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 I mean, it's not a huge amount of money, but it, it's, it's substantial. It's enough for somebody to, to think this is my, partly my company and I've got some of my yeah. own. They have to be equity holders. They too. have to be equity holders. And if, they have enough equity and they've been at the company a certain amount of time, they can opt in to fill that role. So it's kind of volunteer based Uh, and there's some hurdles that they have to cross, but, um, and that, uh, that for us has worked. Uh, Now, if we ever had tension with that, anyone can propose changing that, right? This is all open, flexible in our governance process, but we've never had tension with that. I've never noticed anything like that happening. I've never had any tension myself with that.
2: Great. And sort of extending on that, have you, um, are you familiar with uh, what they call, Decentralized autonomous organizations, DLOs, DAOs. Yes. Yep. So, has the crypto community reached out to you and embraced Holacracy or what's the Yes, industry? I'm actually fairly involved in
1: the crypto community. I was a really early uh, crypto um, advocate and investor, and all that. Uh, and um, it's interesting. There's a lot less. I would love to see a lot more crypto companies doing Holacracy. It seems to me like a natural fit, right. um, and there are there are some. Um, but uh, not as much as I'd like, uh, which is kind of ironic. I actually have a blog post specifically about this, where I'm kind of calling out like kind of ironic, the companies are out there promoting, you know, the, the power of decentralized um, systems in the world, and they're running the business in this complete, centralized command- and control hierarchy. And I think sometimes it's because they just don't know uh, that there's an alternative. Another common thing, a lot of these companies are in the like venture-funded, fast-growth, build, grow, and sell mode. And it's hard to do a massive change to your operating framework when you're just looking at, like, how fast can I grow, scale, get money in, and exit. Um, Holacracy is much better suited for people taking a longer-term time horizon view. Um, so some of it may just be practical uh, in that way. It's, it's a hard change. And if you're going to build, grow, and exit in two to three years, right, or that's your goal, why Why take on a a massive multi-year, you know, huge change like that?
0: So uh, talking sort of a decentralized um, decision-making, the power of, I guess, I'm, I'm curious how this relates to your political views. How this relates, or or perhaps what your experiences are um, with adoptions in other countries where the culture itself might be more sort of grab and control, centralized power. You mentioned you're working with Russian companies. Russia, as a political entity, is not known for you know uh, you know autonomous power or divisions of division of power. So I'm I'm curious whether you've seen um, cultural boundaries that reflect national boundaries and in the the ability to adopt this framework.
1: Yeah, so um, it's it's pretty widely spread. Uh, there's interest in all over the world, all different cultures. Each one has its own unique challenges to the adoption journey and, and where the culture kind of makes it easy and where it makes it hard. And so that's different in different countries. But um, I haven't seen any like general universal bias, I can say, of these work better than those or whatever. It seems to be pretty universal. Um, uh, I have, uh, it's it's interesting, even I've seen multiple government agencies now adopting Holacracy, <laughs> including in some, you know, pretty, those are often bureaucratic systems to say the least. Um uh, you
2: say at what level? Is, it's not at the like uh, department level? Or, uh, yeah,
1: no, entire agencies. Um, we've also seen department level in a couple of agencies, oh, but we've now seen multiple entire agencies, including, I can't name the agency yet, but in a, uh, basically the top, single top government agency of an entire federal government of a sovereign nation um which is pretty cool right like you're seeing that level of innovation um and i find it like almost ironic in some ways because you know this is a a shift to a radically different way of achieving order than we see our nation states applying and um you mentioned you know politics and people often ask me about my politics it's really hard it's It's kind of like i I feel like my answer to that is kind of like when people ask me about my management style and it's like well (laughs) you're asking me about my management style but (laughs) i I work on systems that kind of say how can we just change the system in a way that we don't need to debate on the best management style we can just get you know a a system that performs better without the need for the same kind of centralized top-down management and i politics the same my open question is how can we get more self-organization in society how can we not debate about the right top-down centralized government control to apply or not how can we define systems that allow more self-organization or more distributed control throughout the system right um, and and i i don't pretend to have answers to that i just find that i'm i'm less interested in playing within the current paradigm and more interested in how do we question the paradigm itself And and that applies to anything, whether we're talking about how we manage companies or how we manage uh, countries, you know?
2: So I can ask you, do you think libertarians sort of latch on to this idea?
1: Um, So it's fascinating. I see it across the political spectrum. There are a lot of libertarians that definitely latch on to this. There's a lot of anarchists that latch on to this. And then I have tons of friends on the left who are like, yes, this gives so much more empowerment to workers and voice and better conditions, and they love it. And each side seems to think this is like the way of taking their values and bringing them into the corporate world. And and I think they're all right, because I don't think those values left and right and whatever else are fundamentally conflicting, right, in the right paradigm, in the right system. I think they all have a place. And I think Holacracy kind of does tackle things from just a higher order. And it makes room for all of these to coexist. And so, yeah, it's kind of a mirror. You can look in it. And whatever it is you value, you're probably going to see it enacted by holacracy, maybe more than you thought possible before, but it's going to come at a cost, which is you must be equally prepared to embrace its opposite. Because whatever it is that you reject, that you demonize, that you think is bad, holacracy probably embraces that too. And that makes it very neutral from an ideological ground. It is not ideologically loaded. It is neutral, but it's also challenging because it's going to embrace multiple polarities or opposites, paradoxes are integrated by the system.
2: So, so just one more point on this. Do you think then, you know, not saying right or left, but if somebody has a conservative mindset, meaning a resistance to change, is, this, is, is an idea like this sort of, uh, you know, just a big offense to them? So it depends what you mean. And I, I differentiate between
1: um, where that's coming from. I right?
2: politically like, or religiously, but just no, mindset.
1: Yeah, but even that, I think we need to get more uh, nuanced, right? Like there are some people that have a conservative approach, because they see wisdom in what's come before has been proven to work, right? So I that's the root of what conservative, you know, principles are really all about. It's, hey, this has worked in the past. So let's be very mindful and conscious before we rush into changing something that has worked. Let's bias towards preserving what's come before as we then branch out and do experiment and adapt in what's new. If somebody's coming from what I call that a very mature conservative outlook, they're going to see what they love in Holacracy just like somebody coming from a mature liberal outlook or a libertarian or whatever will. But if they're coming from a less mature, which I think on the, the conservative side is more just like, change is scary. I can't envision the future you know, change is scary. I don't want that. Uh, or, like, nope, there's one right way. I was raised with this. This is the way, right? If somebody's coming from that kind of immature grounding, then holacracy will challenge them a lot. And that's true as much on the liberal side, too, or anywhere else. Um, holacracy is very type neutral. Whatever someone values in, in terms of like different types of people, it's going to embrace it all. But it is, there's a developmental thing in there. If somebody is more, um, are less mature, less open, less, you know, resilient, able to take on new things. It's going to challenge them a lot. And those are the ones that we often will see dropping out and leaving when companies adopt this. It's the people that have no interest in learning new ways and they're stuck in, they know the right way to lead. And now sometimes it, it, it changes that. It's not, they don't always leave. So I've seen people in that state have massive breakthroughs.
0: And make huge leaps in their development. Um,
2: yeah, that's kind it. of a, a oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, a, a pivot from that. But you know, we are currently all experiencing um, the conditions that are kind of a mixed result between centralized answers to things and local resistance or local attempts to sort of um, you know come up with local solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you've been an advocate for decentralized solutions to to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I think that some of those arguments are really interesting. Um, What do you think about when you look at the data of uh, death rates and infection rates and things like that, to the extent that it's accurate, it does seem to indicate that the countries that have responded in a more centralized fashion, more aggressively, more quickly, have tended to contain it to a much higher extent than the ones that have a much more distributed uh, process. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering... Can a dis- can such a distributed system um, respond to core in, in a coordinated fashion um, well when there really is an emergency and do, does does this how does your views on holocracy pertain to that in the politics
2: like, when there's an attack to the
0: yeah 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 totally um, so okay there's a lot in there to unpack
1: um, one thing i i want to say i've i've definitely seen really good credible arguments that align with what you're saying of hey, the countries that have taken a more, you know, centralized, like, we're doing this, we are mandating it across the board. Uh, I've seen data and arguments that seem to indicate that that, that's actually saved more lives. And I've seen data and arguments indicating the exact opposite over the long term, not uh, short term, but often you see arguments like, actually, it's going to be the same number of people just spread out or, you know, whatever, or there's also now concerns of what about second order effects like famines that might be created or domestic abuse or suicides or whatever other like other causes of death that might go up. And I, I'm not advocating for that. I'm simply saying, I don't know, right? I I, I don't what I see so much, it's Facebook's been so frustrating lately, because I, I see people getting so um kind of kind of stuck almost in in one ground. It's like whatever their ideological worldview like starts with, it's like how do I self reinforce that? And I don't actually have a stance. I don't know. I see credible arguments and data and people refuting data on both all sides of that. So where I fall back to is um, there's a lot of unknowns here. There's a lot of uncertainty and the system is massively complex, right? I mean, and I don't just mean we're, we're not just solving for how do we limit deaths from the virus short term. I think that's also something we really have to be careful with, right? Because the right answer for that might have more deaths long-term from other effects, or maybe not. We don't know, but we have to broaden that perspective to include something bigger. And even that isn't the limit of what we're solving for, because the right system to optimize for, say, overall coronavirus-related deaths might sub-optimize for other really important, valuable things. Like It might be that North Korea is the best possible government you know, uh, uh, structure to solve and take care of Virus and, and that might actually be true like they might be better equipped But does that mean that that's the right overall structure to have because you don't get to choose and say We're gonna have this structure for this virus, but a different structure for everything else. They often kind of come together so I, My first encouragement for people is broaden that perspective We are solving a much bigger problem than how to limit deaths over the next few months from from COVID. we're looking at how to get the right system in place Right. That's going to optimize for many variables, not just virus related variables. Right. And include second and third order effects of the virus measures as well. Massively complex. I definitely don't have an answer to that. And I think anyone who thinks they do have a clear, definite answer to that is probably self deluded at this point. I think it's too complex to know. Um, So what do we do in a system where it is too complex to know? Um, Not that we can't know anything. We know some things for sure, right? And that's when I I get to, in those kinds of complexity, I think the best solutions don't come from any single point, right? Just like in a a company, the best solutions rarely come top down, right? It's often when you allow lots of experiments to happen and the best ones to win out by virtue of their merits, right? You allow a thousand experiments to bloom, you'll find better solutions. And this has been studied in a, a social setting. And, and one of the findings has been consistently, if a solution requires coercion, if you have to force people under threat of violence to do something, generally that system results in suboptimal solutions if you can find one that doesn't require coercion, right? That allows voluntary uh, choice-making still. And that's simply because when you allow that, you allow more experiments, you allow people to make arguments. So, I love seeing arguments across the board in this. I love seeing people advocating for whatever they think is best and providing their their data. And I love seeing those arguments winning and spreading, you know. Um, What I don't like is seeing single-pointed control because I do think that's going to get suboptimal results in the
0: big picture,
1: even if it works better in the short term.
0: So this this, uh, kind of uh, echoes, I think, a much larger question, which kind of uh, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is kind of uh, in the evolution of cultures and the evolution of cultural values, those systems and rules that are more adaptive are the ones that are going to win out. Yes. Um, Do you have any concerns at a very broad level um, that some of the things that we uh, hold dear, perhaps, like, you know, things that I view as sort of fundamental American values, fundamental, like, versions of liberty, the idea of individual liberty and the idea of individual decision-making, the idea of the individual as being important. Um, and I think of holocracy as very much an expression of a lot of those values in some ways. Do you f- feel or fear that in some setting, in some sort of permutations, that is not the winning rule set, that is not the winning decision-making dis- uh, pro- uh, process? Um. I'd say anything that is biased of, uh, like towards that against
1: collective, like uh, caretaking collectively is definitely not a universal right answer, but that isn't where I'd put holacracy. Okay. Um, I don't think holacracy biases towards individual you know, liberty or freedom or autonomy over collective responsibility in any way, no more than it does the other way around. It also doesn't bias towards collective uh, you know, autonomy or, or sorry, collective responsibility over individual autonomy. And I think the same is true in societies. So I don't personally value individual freedom more than I value collective responsibility. I hold both of these as, as soon as I feel like I have to choose between them, I'm missing the higher order integration, right? And so my challenge for myself is find a way where these two are not in any way conflicting. And that's not always immediately obvious. Sometimes they really seem at odds and I just take that as a challenge. Um, Holacracy, as far as companies go, uh, I don't see those biases in holacracy, and partly because it's, it's, it's so adaptive. If the right answer in one context is, no, this is such a critical decision, we should have you know 10 people agreeing on it or whatever, then you can make governance that says, these 10 people need to agree, right? On the other hand, if like, no, in this crisis, the best answer is one person decides for the whole company, these things with no double checks, you can make governance that says, well, this one person in these decisions, will define all of this, right? So it's adaptive that way. Um, In fact, if you wanted to, you could use Holacracy's governance structure to create a role, call it manager, create another role, call it subordinate, give the manager role the accountability to boss the subordinate around, give the subordinate role an expectation to do whatever the manager says, give the manager higher fire compensation privilege over the subordinate. You could define all of that in Holacracy and it's perfectly valid Holacracy governance right? It would last until someone said, huh, this isn't working to serve our purpose as well as something else I can envision. So I'm going to propose some tweak, right? So the thing is, Holacracy is more meta than that. It's not biasing one way or the other. It's simply letting you evolve and adapt and it's integrating all of these. It's, um, and, and that's, again, what makes it, I think, so challenging and what makes it so broad. It's why people on the left will absolutely swear by it for their value system. And I'll see the exact same when people on the opposite side of the political spectrum. It's because it integrates them. It's both, right? It's not one or the other. It's the
0: Wikipedia of corporate governance. <laughs> cool. <laughs> everyone, everyone can make an edit, but the, uh, there might be mods. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's integrating all of that and the governance process itself has protections built in. It's,
1: it's the most individual honoring process, but also the most collective alignment process that I've ever seen. Right? It gives people so much freedom to change anything within the most rigid structure imaginable. Right? It's, it's weird. It keeps integrating opposites and polarities like that. And I think that's its magic. And that's also what I want to see in society. I don't want to see as biased towards individual liberty over collective responsibility and caretaking. And I don't want to see it the other way either. I don't think we have to make those choices. I think they're false, false
2: dichotomies. I really like the idea that if there's a rigid rule set so it's not just laissez-faire, everything goes, within boundaries. And I think that's very clear for people to understand when they hear, oh, it's just autonomous. That means no rules. No, nope. So it's really nice. Beautiful idea. Should we wrap it up, Brian? It's been over like an hour. Let's 15 do it. So, uh, Brian, we like to end
0: um, with everybody kind of uh, giving a short recommendation for something that they have been thinking about, reading, or run across, or even just, uh, you know, go hug your neighbor or something like that. Um, and uh, we'll give you a minute uh, to, to think about something. But um, I'm going to go ahead and propose the uh, book that I recommended earlier today, which is... Um, um, I guess, The Secret to Our Success, uh, just a fabulous uh, take on cultural evolution and its, and its role in basically shaping the human tool set uh, and viewing kind of culture as an extension of the tool set. It was just an awesome book.
2: Hmm. Nice. Cool. Um, my recommendation for this week is gonna be, so I think like the idea of holacracy seems to be so advanced for, for an idea for, um, for governance. And the other extreme is sort of what happens in a country like India, which is so rigid with its bureaucracy that there's probably gonna be no change for maybe centuries, you know, sadly. But, and my wife does a lot of research there. So we've been watching this new show on Amazon Prime called Panchayat, which basically goes down to one village in India where this guy from the city is now the sort of appointed government official and he has to deal with the local politics in the village and his bureaucracy from higher up. And you kind of cringe every time and you're like, oh man, this is why, you know, like so many things are help. These are good people. They can't do what they want to do. It's really beautifully done. It's just short half an hour episodes. I'd encourage you to give it a look. It's called Panchayat on uh, Prime. Cool.
1: Yeah, um, I think I'm going to go with uh, a book on, um, Brian, you mentioned the kind of the, the uh, something about culture, evolution of culture and all that. Uh, there's a, a book called Reinventing Organizations, um, written by Frederick uh, which looks at the evolution of organizational um, control systems, paradigms, uh, and the the whole cultural shifts around them. Um, he does mention Holacracy, uh, but it's a much broader framing. It's not about Holacracy specifically. Um, and he looks at the evolution of how our forms of organization kind of evolve and get more sophisticated and more capable of dealing with complexity, right? And he, he kind of studies the history and looks at where we are and then looks at like all these different examples of real organizations that have kind of seemed to have found a paradigm beyond our, our modern uh, and kind of postmodern norms. So I uh, really love that book, Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Wulu.
0: Cool. Thank you so much, Brian, for being a part of the heart of the matter. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. One of my favorite podcasts yet. So thanks. Thanks both of you.